Now, I want you to relax, because this is not a sermon where I'm going to invite you to give money. It's far more important than that. It's about money per se. So we've been doing this series called The Bible and, and we're looking tonight at the Bible and money and how we see it. If you're a teenager and you've got a job, what do you do with it all? You'll probably tell me I earn next to nothing. You really couldn't live on what I've got. If you're somebody who's out working, both of you out working, uh, and you've got a big mortgage and things like that, and somebody starts talking to you about how we handle our finances, you say, the man's a joke, because actually we're completely stretched with our finances lifestyle, money, and things like that are a major, major issue. And I just want to explore some issues tonight around that so that we perhaps see that the Bible, funny old thing, might have some wisdom for us for the whole of life. Okay, first slide, Rob, if you don't mind. Oh, he's always doing it funny. There you go, great. Okay, a man called Michel Coist wrote a poem, Prayer, called prayer before a five-pound note. But I decided with inflation, it's a 20-pound note. Lord, see this note. It frightens me. You, you know its secrets. You know its history. How heavy it is. It scares me, for I cannot speak. It will never tell all it hides in its creases. Through how many hands... As it passed, Lord, it has offered white roses to a radiant fiancé. It has paid for the baptismal party and fed the growing baby. It has provided bread for the family table. Because of it, there was laughter among the young and joy among the adults. It has paid for the saving visit of a doctor. It has bought the book that taught the youngster. It has clothed a young girl. But it has sent the letter breaking an engagement. It has paid for the death of a child in a mother's womb. It has bought the liquor that made the drunkard. It has produced the film unfit for children and has recorded an indecent song. It has broken the morals of the adolescent and made of an adult a thief. It has bought for a few hours the body of a woman. It has paid for the weapons of the crime and for the wood of the coffin. O oh Lord, I offer you this note with its joyous mysteries and its sorrowful mysteries. I thank you for all the life and joy it has given. I ask your forgiveness for the harm it has done. But above all, Lord, I offer it to you as a symbol of all the labors of men, seemingly indestructible money, which tomorrow needs to be changed into eternal life. If you read John Grisham's novel, The King of Torts, then you'll know that the main character is a young lawyer working for the poor down in Washington, D.C. And one day he's offered the chance to make a great deal of money very quickly on a mass litigation law case. He accepts the offer and he makes more money overnight. He cannot believe his luck. Then he goes on to another case and he makes more and more money by which time he's known by his friends as the king of torts. And you would think, with all that money, he was a man who'd be as happy as Larry. 
but not so. In fact, as the months went by, he became more and more anxious that that which he had made could be taken away from him. So instead of enjoying his money, he worried about it. Grisham has one key message in his book, The King of Torts. Money isn't all it's cracked up to be. In fact, it can sometimes bring more pain than pleasure. But is that it? And is that all that the Bible, for instance, would say about money and see it as something to run away from? Not quite. But it does have over 1,600 verses in the Bible alone on money. It talks more in the Bible about money than heaven and hell. Money, however, is simply a medium of exchange, recognized by a society as payment for goods. That's what we have it for. We invented it. It's not God's invention. But the principles by which and for which we use it, they're of real concern to God. And so I want to ask you just to think for a moment, have you ever prayed over your bank balance? Have you ever looked at your checkbook and thought how you might use it? Have you ever taken the change out of your pocket and imagined its potential for good or for evil? The majority of people, money is simply necessary to live. But for others, finances can become much more about that. So I'm really asking tonight, what has the Bible to teach us about our relationship with money? What we do with it? What our money does to us? Quite a question. What does our money do to us? Sorry, the pages are sticking together. We believe that the Bible teaches us how to live in a way that pleases God and blesses others and brings lasting joy and peace. And as I say, there's 1,600 verses in the Bible about money alone. I think a lot of us, a lot of us, if we're absolutely honest, hope Jesus is wrong. Because when it comes to money, there's something in us that wants to do with it what we will. And Jesus says that's a seriously bad idea. Do you agree with him? Or would you like a sit-down chat and say, can we negotiate this one, Lord? What's our relationship with money? So I've just got a few points. And we're going to start on a very positive note in the book of Genesis. Upon creating humanity, we find in Genesis, God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. They were to work the garden and take care of it. So from that primitive beginning was the whole development in which humanity learned to sustain itself. And out of it, whether it's salt or coinage or 20 pound notes, we have developed the means of paying for all that stuff, which we call money. In short, the Bible teaches that just as creation is good. Money is a good gift from God. It is not filthy and it is not unspiritual. Money matters. That's because creation matters and money enables us to participate in a share of creation. But it is also a major temptation and can be a terrible master. 
So money then is a major temptation. The Bible certainly unmasks the false promises we project onto money. Money that promises security but can't protect us against God's judgment. Money promises lasting happiness but it can disappear overnight. You can't take it with you when you die. Some of us like to try that one. Money promises freedom and ease but it brings anxiety and worry. And of course ultimately money is not a problem. Money is not a problem. We are. The problem comes with our heart's cravings for the things that we want to do through money. And the warnings against the abuse of things and coveting and things like that start early in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And for that, read his bank balance. Money. And greed is simply a desire that seems to distort our relationship with money. And this verse brings to mind how the industrialist and uh, supposedly a generous man, Rockefeller, famously responded when asked, how much money is enough money? He was a billionaire. How much money is enough money? And he said, it would be fine if I had just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The Apostle Paul issues a sobering warning against allowing the desire for wealth to overtake. And that was the reading from 1 Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I want to suggest to you that actually, however long you've been a Christian or however recently, sorting this out would be good. But they do say that the last part of a person to be converted is their pocket. And the key thing is, this is a kind of thing that we'd rather put off for another day. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. We brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires. Now, I don't know whether you listen to the sermons on, uh, online from this church. Well, the other week on Sunday morning, uh, Helen Gilbert preached a sermon. It was a stonking sermon. It was mind-blowing. When I stood up to respond to it afterwards, I didn't quite know what to say. I had to catch my breath. Because as I was sat there, and she was talking about the accumulation of things, we were packing up. 18 birch tree gardens to move to, wait for it, nine Ulrich gardens. Exactly. Saxon for Aldridge, if you didn't know. We can't even pronounce it yet. Anyway, two people living in a four-bedroomed house. We are stuffed to the gunnels with stuff. So as your rector, as your minister, and as a fellow Christian, I'm thinking to myself as she's preaching this sermon, how likely could I live? Four years or so off retirement, how much stuff could we get rid of and frankly still have more than enough? Now, I don't know about you, but for the coins, that's a live issue. We could really do with getting rid of a lot of stuff. And I don't think we're alone. So there's something about stuff that we have and that we accumulate that can be a challenge. So then money, money and what it achieves can be a major temptation and it doesn't go away. And this saying, money is a very excellent servant, positive message, but a terrible master. 
Money can provoke all kinds of all-consuming desire that Jesus spoke against. And he said right at the end of Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So I'm going to ask you a question. In your hearts, answer this before God. Do you really and truthfully love God? Do you care about him? Do you have a passion for his name? Do you have a longing that you would know God more and more, that you would know his reality through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you love him more than money? And does he occupy your concerns and your minds more than your relationship with cash and what cash can achieve? This is not kind of some super spiritual message because remember, money is okay. But actually Jesus is saying here, you need to get your relationship with me sorted and frankly, there's no room for a two-way deal. What does that look like then? So money is a terrible master, said Jesus. How do we think about that and work it through in our lives? When you covet money or possessions, you can't be satisfied without them. You're effectively saying that God himself isn't as satisfying as you thought. Now, I need to get my head around that one. Is the acquisition of things the fact that basically we're sometimes not very secure in God? Some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life had less than I can put in one room. And they were amazing. And they had a joy and a joie de vivre about life that was just breathtaking. They'd got something that I lack. Well, to start to be undone from this grasp of money, firstly, something that Ruth said, recognize that everything you have ultimately belongs to God. God is the creator says the Bible, who ultimately owns everything, all money, all the earth, everything. That means that anything that you have has been entrusted to you by God. And to convey this reality, the Bible, right the way through Genesis, right the way through the Old Testament, right the way through the New, carries the idea, if not the word, that we are stewards of what God has placed at our disposal. And in this room tonight, there are people who've got lots and there are people who've got little. But the word we're on a level playing field that we are absolutely stewards of what we've got. And this concept is so crucial within Christianity that Jesus even used it as a metaphor for all Christian discipleship. He compares God to the master who entrusts varying sums of money <clears throat> to his servants, goes away for a time and expects them to be wise with their responsibilities until he returns. To invest the money, and turn a profit. And Jesus' point here is not about money at all. But it's certainly one aspect of the message. What he's really saying is, you are a steward of everything you have in life. Your gifts, your talents, your time, your money, your job, your family. How are we, how am I, stewarding those things? What matters to God is not so much how much we have, but what we do with what we do have. And it's what we do with what we have 
that will have eternal consequences. If God has given us everything we have, then everything is not just a matter of stewardship. It is a gift. And Ruth and that song try to convey that to us beautifully tonight. So a biblical attitude to money can be summed up like this. It's not how much can I get, but how much can I give? It's not that we shouldn't seek riches at all. It's not that we shouldn't save and all things like that. The Bible encourages us to do those things. But what it does say is really very, very important that actually we need to move on from having to being generous with our money. What does that look like? We need to support those who go without David Shepherd, a former bishop of Liverpool, wrote a book that caused a right stink, especially in the Church of England. He dared to call it Bias to the Poor. And he said that when he reads the Bible, he finds that God has a bias to the poor. It's not that God isn't interested in rich people. He is. But his bias is to the vulnerable. And in church this morning, we were thinking about the fact that those whom God welcomes are not, if you like, the toffs, but the vagabonds, those in need of grace and mercy, those who've no reputation to protect, no standard to uphold. They're simply at the bottom of the heap. And when the toffs didn't accept the invitation to the do, Jesus says, go out in the byways and invite the rest. And that is a picture of God's church. I spent my third placement at Theological College in one of the poshest parts of North London. There was a millionaire in every other house. And the principal of our college did a mission there and said to these incredibly posh people, unfortunately, when you do things God's way, you can't pick and choose those who'll invite to join us. Now, there were only toffs in that parish, so they were quite safe. But you get the drift. God favours the fact that he has a bias to reaching out to those who are without. And he says to the church, reach out to those who are without Christ, but also reach out to those who are without material resources. We must, says scripture, help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle John writes this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? If we don't provide for their needs, our love is only empty talk. Now, I don't know how we disentangle ourselves from a preoccupation with money, but I think this is what Jesus is getting at. If you want to hang on to your wallet a bit less tightly, Learn to be generous. Learn to give it away and discover that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you hope Jesus is right? Let's pray. Father God, we've been trying to learn as a church for two or three years now what it is to be whole life disciples. We're trying to learn what it is not just to be Sunday Christians, but to be Christians in every area of life. And we're getting a few things sorted in our head, but some of us 
have an issue with money. We pray, Lord, that your word would teach us that money is indeed part of how you help us to engage with creation, to steward its resources well. We recognize, too, the solemn warnings of how money can grip us and define us, how it can become, instead of a servant, a master. And those of us who love you want to be released from those things. And we pray for the grace of your Spirit to speak into our lives, to touch us, and to enable us to see where we're blind in relation to money. And we pray that you will set us free. We pray that you'll set us free to be people renowned for generosity, renowned for a bias to the poor, and in so doing a people who echo the heart of the living God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.